Thanks, everyone. My name's Sai. If you didn't get that already, it's my joy to bring God's word to you this morning. Uh, just uh, to me to add my thanks, if you like, for all those you have given uh, to towards the work of God here. I know this year has been a really difficult year. It's been a tough year for many. So uh, thank you for your faith and thank you for your generosity. And I'm sure God's going to uh, use it to help establish his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Just want to say thank you to those of you who um, were aware and uh, have been praying for our friends in Uganda after the um, uh, tragic passing away of my friend uh, uh, 10 days ago, Pastor Richard, uh, who's only uh, 48. Thank you for um, that. Please do keep praying for the churches there and also the work in South Sudan, which he was linked with because obviously that's... um, going to be challenging for them. And also, if I could be encouraging you to pray for our four friends in the Horn of um, Africa, who you know have been on trial for the last four, six months or so for leaving Islam and uh, coming to uh, Christianity. Uh, please be praying for them. I had a message yesterday uh, from the uh, one of the people involved in the case saying it's not looking uh, good, humanly speaking, at the moment. So it's looking like they're going to push for the death penalty. So um, please uh, be praying for them. I'm claiming Psalm 2 over the situation where it says, why does the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? God's in heaven. He's in control. And uh, he causes confusion and, you know, if you like, uh, derision amongst the, the, the nation and uh, um and turns the situation around. So be joining me in praying for that. I'll just pray for them now quickly, actually. Lord, thank you for uh, my friends out there. Lord God, I thank you for the fact that they know you with them, that they're standing strong in you, Lord Jesus. I pray that even now you would just fill them with your Holy Spirit, continue to give them boldness. And I pray, Lord God, that you would intervene. And uh, either supernaturally, Lord God, or through natural uh, means, Lord God, bring them out of uh, that situation, Lord God. And I just pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. It's all the more shocking for us, isn't it, news like that? Because we live in a nation that is obsessed with our individual rights that we have. You know, my children at school were being taught about um, their UN human rights that kids have. And they say things to me like, you can't touch me without my approval. And I'd be like, what? Like that? Yeah, like that? What? Like that? And uh, wind them up uh, uh, about it. You know, we live in a society that's heavy on our rights, but less concerned about our responsibility. And it's interesting, isn't it, to see how COVID has actually changed that to some degree in terms of our rights to freedoms of movement and stuff like that. Although, you know, we're going to ease back into having freedom of movement. Actually, culturally speaking, we are much more aware of our responsibility of how we go about doing things and what we do, how that impacts on other people and exposes them to risk, particularly health risks. I'm sure that actually a lot of people won't be, you know, the the uh, old Beecham's advert, sorts of men from the boys and they show people coming into work even though they're full of, uh, you know, the flu or something like that. And uh, I'm sure that culture will go because uh, you might be fine with it, but others aren't. So it's interesting, isn't it? As we uh, continue, though, today in our series on 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 to 11, verse 16, 
we will see how Paul concludes his argument with the Corinthians on Christian individual rights versus our responsibility as well, before moving on to address that whole subject in a corporate worship setting as well. Gordon Fee uh, says, personal freedom, as important as that is to Paul, is not the ultimate goal of the Christian life. Seeking the good of others is. Morris writes on this passage as well that the Christian is not concerned with rights but the glory of God. And if you like, my message to you today could be summed up in verse 31 where it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As all things done in faith can be done to the glory of God. God. Obviously, sin dishonors God. It's something that we're called to avoid and repent of. So, as Christians, we can have this mantra of our, uh, for our life in a personal sense and also for us as a church. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as, uh, verse 23, and I'll read to 11, verse 1 to start with, as we look at glorifying God as individuals, firstly. So, it says this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that, for which I give thanks. So whatever you you eat or drink, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Verse 23 and 24, if you like, act as summary verses for this passage. And Paul starts by saying, all things are lawful for me. Quoting the slogan, if you like, the Christians in Corinth had, that all things are lawful. We can do what we like. He picks that up in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, and we've already looked at that. But he takes their slogan and rather than just saying, no, 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 he takes it and then he begins to adapt it so that they can realise their responsibilities too. And he adds in, but not all things are helpful, or not all things build up other people. Paul is, if you like, helping them to see that they should be seeking the good of their neighbour. Or to use Jesus' words to us, love your neighbour as yourself. You see, within Christianity, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we are free 
from being under God's wrath. We are free from dead works trying to please God as well. Through where we put our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, he takes our sins on himself. He takes God's wrath on himself. And we get accepted. We get adopted. We get given his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. Outside of believing in Jesus, there's no hope of us getting right with God or coming out from under his judgment. But in Christ, all these things are freely given to us. And we're given the Holy Spirit to give us the power to live for God and to put to death our sinful nature. As I said, we're no longer do we have to worry about trying to please God with our dead works that we do with our own effort. No longer do we have to worry about the demonic and things like that because they've all been defeated at the cross in Christ. God is concerned with our heart attitude more than anything else. So we can, whatever we do, as long as not sin, as I've already said, we can do it to the glory of God. Verse 31. We don't have to worry about what other people think about us. Verse 29. The only person that truly matters what he, uh, what, what, what he thinks of us is God. That's the only one we have to worry about. And he is the one who made everything anyway. That's everything that's being created is from him. And we can uh, partake of it with thanksgiving. Verse 26. That's your freedom in Christ. That's your right standing before God that is secured for you because of Jesus. Hallelujah. Nothing can take that away for you. But yet, we don't live in a vacuum of our rights, we also need to be aware of our responsibility to present Christ to the many so that the many may be saved. Verse 33. Paul, whilst not restricting our freedoms, makes it clear that we are to seek our neighbor's good and that we are, for the sake of the gospel, should sometimes choose to limit or abstain from the freedoms that we have for the sake of somebody else, for their conscience, or so that we don't offend them. Now, I'm not talking about the gospel itself, because obviously the gospel message does and can bring offence to some people. But here, Paul is applying this, this principle to foods, foods offered to other gods, which is not really something in Helsham, as Jenny pointed out a few weeks ago, that we uh, struggle with. That is, but you may have some uh, Muslim friends, for example, and they, they, they may make a big thing about halal meat, I suppose, if, if you were there. But really, it's not something that we face here. An example from abroad is when I go to Africa and I work with the churches um, out there, I don't drink alcohol when I'm uh, around them because it, I, I don't want to offend them over basically an unimportant issue that they have good reason to not relaxing their views on, um, on the drinking of alcohol. So I don't bother doing it. Here is probably more likely and most likely what TV programs you allow yourself uh, to, to watch. And uh, you may be fine watching something, but you know someone else, they struggle with that program. They think, oh, no, I, I can't watch that. Well, don't boast about the fact that, oh, I can watch it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect me. Consider them. Basically, this passage 
uh, can be summed up by do all to the glory of God, not yourself, verse 31. Try to please others, not claim your own rights, verse 33. Seek others' advantage, not your own fulfillment, verse 24. Strive for the many to be saved rather than just boasting about your own salvation, verse 33. Prior, and his summary of, of this passage says, this is Christian freedom, being free from ourselves to glorify God by being like Christ, verse 1. You can see that there. Now, much more should and could be said on these verses, but I need to leave more room for the next section, which we look at glorifying God corporately together, um, as Paul does in, in this passage, because it's more culturally awkward for us. It's one of those passages that um, uh, we, were, we struggle with culturally. And firstly, as I always do when I preach on unpopular passages, um, remind you that this is God's word to us for all time. It's written for our good. If you have a problem with what's in here, it's you that has the problem. Either in your understanding, you're misunderstanding something that is written in here, or it is your sense of right and wrong is out of line with what God says. Your morality is different to God's, and therefore it's you that needs to change, not God. So with that said, let's uh, look at this passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 12 to 16. And it'd be helpful for you to understand, though, before I read, that most theologians uh, would, uh, um, would teach us that in that day, the women of Corinth, like many of the women in the Greco-Roman world, uh, would wear a headdress to, to cover their head. And it was only mistresses of wealthy Corinthians or prostitutes that didn't um, wear a headdress and had their hair freely flowing. And slaves had, shaved, had their heads shaved. So just bear that in mind as I read this passage to you. Verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Just to interject here, um, most theologians humbly recognize that whilst they might give some opinions of what they think the angels means, that actually one thing we can be certain of is that we don't know really what Paul, why Paul includes the angels in this passage. But they're involved somehow, okay? And I'll make reference to them uh, uh, later as well. 
Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself if it is proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, you all say. Anyway, lovely to speak to you today. Have a nice... uh, (laughs) Few quick thoughts to allow to percolate in your mind before we carry on. If you see in verse 6 there that the issue is bringing disgrace in Corinth. Yet in our culture, whether a woman has something on her head or not, Uh, doesn't bring disgrace, whether a woman has short hair or even a shaven head, again, is not an issue of disgrace. Likewise, verse 14 as well, short hair for men outside of the Greco-Roman world that Paul was writing to in this situation, men had long hair and Paul knew that, he wasn't oblivious to that fact. In fact, in his own culture in Israel, The Nazarites, the people that dedicate themselves to God, they were to grow their hair long. They weren't to cut it. The most famous of them being Samson. And that was considered a, you know, wow, they must be really godly, good people. Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 26. It's made clear that part of his handsome appearance was that his hair was long. And every year he'd get it cut and it weighed so much because he was so handsome with his long hair not true also in our culture men I know I have my hair short but that's not because of this passage it's because I'm lazy and I don't want to style it it's just a, um, so uh, just uh, bear that in mind too verses eight and nine bear this in mind Paul is linking it back to the created order so it's something to do with creation and the created order so that needs to be there in your thinking but remember in the garden of Eden They were created naked. There was no coverings at all. Everything was hanging out for all to, to see. So it's not the issue of covering per se, but it is the issue of disgrace that is brought about by the removal of a cultural symbol of authority. Paul here is teaching into the principle that he's applied from chapter 10, verse 33, where he says, try to please everyone in everything you do, not seeking your own advantage, but that of many, that, that, that many may be saved. You see, the principles of God's word we apply, and they're binding for all time, but cultural norms are non-binding and sometimes actually unhelpful for the spread of the gospel. You see, Paul's not suddenly concerned about fashion, how long you have wear your hair or, or you know, what you have on your head, whether you wear a hat or not. Paul's concern is to do with the blatant disregard of a cultural symbol of authority 
that was bringing about unnecessary disgrace on the church. And its removal actually possibly was coming about because of the uh, response that, um, to the newfound freedom and rights that women had in the gospel. To help you get a sense of the shock factor of, um, of the ladies not wearing this, it would be a little bit like if next week you all decided to come to church in swimwear. It would, uh, you know, you know, we could say, well, yeah, God's concerned with my heart, not with what I'm wearing. Well, that is true, but it would probably be unhelpful if you all came here in your swimwear next week. Certainly in British culture, it would be unhelpful. Some of the places I go to, swimwear would be modest wear, and that would be, you know, quite preferable to, for a, a Western man like myself. I can remember one time being in Uganda in a remote village there preaching, and right in the front row, in front of everyone, was a lady sitting there, both breasts out. On one breast was a, a suckling child, so sucking away. The other breast was dripping milk as this ch child happily suck, uh, sucked on the, her breast. It, you know, uh, culturally in Uganda, no one battered an eyelid. Completely fine. Here in the UK, we may struggle if someone chose to do that. So ladies, the issue is not about you wearing or not wearing something on your head. In fact, Gordon Fee says on this, for Paul, the issue was directly tied to cultural shame. The fact that Paul's own argument is so tied to cultural norm suggests that literal obedience is not mandatory. And indeed, in our culture, where uh, if women were to start wearing something on their head that is completely culturally irrelevant outside, it may actually give offence and hinder the spread of the gospel, the very thing that Paul is trying to stop in this passage. Okay, that's the, uh, the head covering dealt with. One of the key words he uses in this passage, though, and a word play on it, is the word head, referring to our physical head um, sometimes, and other times referring to a metaphorical head, as in a leader. It's a bit like we might use the term head teacher to define uh, that's the, the leader. Gordon Fee, who I've quoted many times and I greatly respect as a theologian, he, he, he goes into it in quite a bit of detail to show how um, uh, Wayne Grudem, some, a lot of you may have heard of Wayne Grudem's argument uh, on this, he, um, he argues that it definitely should be seen as leadership authority and he quotes 2,336 examples in the Greek well, Fee helpfully points out that it's not quite as cast iron as uh, you may have heard before, because he says out of all of those examples, only 49 of them refer to the metaphor metaphor metaphorical head in, in that sense. Uh, and 30 of them are from Scripture. So they come with Grudem's uh, theological framework. Fee would argue that we should see the word as source, like the head of a river or something like that, which whilst it would be culturally more acceptable for me to say, yes, that's, uh, that's probably the way we should see uh, this word, actually it is less biblically convincing, both within the context of this passage, within the context of wider scripture, and on a lesser note, but still a very important 
No, within the context of how church, church through the ages have interpreted these verses. You don't lightly deviate from how the, the church through the centuries have viewed these verses. Sometimes you do, but that would be on strong biblical uh, ground. You see, that's why in verse 8 and 9, Paul actually links it back to creation, where Eve was made to be a helper for Adam. Adam was put in charge, and the one whom God holds chiefly accountable when things go wrong. It's not to do with intelligence. It's not to do with natural ability, gifting, or anything like that. It's solely to do with the fact that the human race has been made in the image of God. It's our privilege as created beings to reflect our God in heaven, who exists in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of them equal, yet there's not three gods, there's only one. It's the mystery of the Trinity. Both the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is also referred to as helper. Both the Son and the, Father, uh, and the Holy Spirit, though they're equal with the Father, they choose to submit to him and follow his lead. And that is what humankind, particularly in the marriage relationship, is called to reflect. And that's the nub of the issue that Paul is addressing here. And that's why, actually, it's probably appropriate that the ESV, in its translation of these verses, limits it to the husband and wife relationship. The issue is about reflecting God through the created order. It's not about equality or inequality in that sense. In fact, if you look at verse 3, Paul starts with Christ being the head of man, and then he talks about the husband-wife relationship, and then he goes back to how... Uh, and uh, God is the head of Christ. He doesn't start with God the Father and then Christ and then the husband and then the wife. It's not a hierarchy, so to, so to speak. And he, what he's trying to show is just, uh, just how Christ is equal with God and yet looks to God the Father uh, uh, to give a lead. So in the husband-wife relationship, you're equal and yet uh, headship is given there to the husband. I don't know if you noticed in verse 4 and 5, Paul actually expects both men and women to prophesy. You may have got distracted by the, the head covering bit there, but that was something that never happened before. And in fact, in many religions today, it's not permitted for the woman to, to share in that context. This is another sign of equality that came about because of the gospel. Verse 11 and 12, once Paul's already dealt with the, the whole issue of headship within the family setting, Paul is clear. Uh, one is not better than the other. And in fact, we're both mutually dependent on each other going forward. And everything anyway has been made by God. So everything should be going back to him for his glory. Calvin writes on this passage, his famous 16th century theologian he says it is the same apostle who teaches in Galatians 3 verse 28 that in Christ there is no male and female when Paul says there's no difference between man and woman he is speaking about the spiritual 
kingdom of Christ, where the outward characteristics count for nothing. At the same time, however, he leaves intact the civil order. So far as the spiritual union is concerned, in the eyes of God, Christ is the head of both the man and the woman without any distinction. On the other hand, as far as social propriety is concerned, the man takes his lead from Christ and the wife from her husband. And the same principle that he applies earlier about Christ being the, you know, the head of both the man and the woman can be applied to verse 7, where they talk about the glory uh, statement as well. Hodge notes on this passage, a famous 19th century theologian, how Christian doctrine is distinguished from all other forms of religion through the equality and dignity it places on women. And can I just highlight the fact that these guys wrote this in a time where there wasn't equality in, uh, between men and women. Actually, equality uh, for, for men and women was birthed out of true Christian doctrine. And people like this writing about it. That's, that laid the seeds for it to happen in, in the Western world as it, as it did. Anyway, so how should we apply this to ourselves? See, our freedom in Christ does not mean we neglect to show respect in culturally relevant ways, especially within the marriage relationship. But as our culture actually shows so little respect to anyone in authority, we as Christians mustn't go along with that because that's something the Bible uh, it teaches a lot into. Yes, maybe because of the angels, who knows, but because it's right before God that we honour those uh, over us in the Lord or in society. You know, since we know as individuals our intrinsic value in Christ, that we are loved, that we're adopted, and no higher honour could be placed on you than being in Christ Jesus as you are when you put your faith in him. That actually frees us to show honour and to show respect to those over us, as is encouraged in many New Testament passages. And as we do that, that is actually another way in which we can bring glory to God. So whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. And I invite the band to come back up here. I'm just going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've recorded stuff in there for our good, Lord God. And uh, Lord, we just thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have set us the example in all things. You are our example, Lord God. And thank you that in you we are loved Thank you that in you, you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us do all that you called us to do. And thank you, Lord God, that in you, that when we get it wrong, Lord God, there is forgiveness and a fresh start every day, Lord God. And so, Lord, I just pray for each one of us that you would fill us afresh with your Spirit, that you would help us to be people individually and as a church, Lord God, that brings you glory, Lord God, in what we do and what we choose not to do, Lord God. Help us as we navigate this uh, um, 
this, de this delicate balance, Lord God, of knowing our rights, knowing our freedom, knowing what you think of us, Lord God, but also being aware of, of how we act um, is perceived by other people, Lord God, and help us to do all that we can to cause many to come to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.